Good morning. This is Middle East Forum Radio in the Morning with Greg Roman on 860 AM, WWDB. We're also having in the studio Matt Bennett while I am broadcasting live from Israel, Jerusalem, the eternal state of the Jewish people, and also a great American ally. We have a great program scheduled today, highlighting some of my visits to the Knesset, Israel's parliament, to the Kiryah, Israel's Ministry of Defense, some interviews that we'll be able to go over with members of the uh, Israeli parliament, like Oded Forer, a uh, member of Knesset who is the chair of the Israel Victory Caucus, and other initiatives that he has in place through his Israel Beitenu political party, Israel Our Home. But to start off the hour, I thought that we would get into a subject that has been playing out in the media for the past 16 to 17 hours, now that it's here in Israel, 5 in the afternoon, 10 a.m. America time, I think that it's time to speak about not necessarily the domestic issues that Donald Trump, our president, was facing yesterday with the guilty plea led in by Mike Cohen, his former attorney, and by Paul Manafort, his former campaign manager, having been found guilty on eight of 18 counts in a U.S. court yesterday in Virginia, his other foreign agent trial coming up in September. But a statement that President Trump made last night in a rally in West Virginia in, in support of a Senate candidate, of a gubernatorial candidate, and basically giving his first remarks after the breaking news that came out yesterday with the Drudge, Re- the Drudge Report uh, uh, headlining, Manafort guilty, Cohen pleads guilty, Trump in hell. But there was something that was missed. And I, I like to pull to a quote, uh, Matt, if we can get it up here on the screen, from uh, uh, that speech that he gave yesterday. In terms of his comments, or his most up-to-date comments, as it relates to the Israel-Palestinian peace process. And basically what he said was that Israel would have to pay a high price in negotiations with the Palestinians for the move of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem because it's now the Palestinians' time to be able to get a ripened reward after Israel has already been able to obtain several, uh, I don't want to call them gifts, but recognitions of Israeli reality since the beginning of Trump's presidency in January of 2017. Now, Trump said that he's been the ultimate deal maker. He's going to pursue the deal of the century. He's going to, in one way or another, recognize reality on the ground. And if, uh, as the president says, he's not able to obtain a deal between the Palestinians and the Israelis, then no one will be able to, considering seeing himself as the main deal breaker. But overnight, the Israeli reaction was furious to the president's comments. We saw members of Knesset, ministers, uh, uh, public figures speaking on the Israeli morning programs today, essentially saying that if the president was giving the recognition of Jerusalem being the capital of the state of Israel as the Israeli side, what could he be expecting from Israel to give in terms of a certain amount of leniency for the Palestinian side? As the defense minister said a few months ago after the recognition of Jerusalem, Israel's capital, this is not going to be a free lunch. So let's kind of break this down, Matt, if we can, in terms of what do you think the uh, the Palestinians are going to be given by the president, are going to be offered as sort of a temptation to enter into negotiations with Israel. And I think before we even talk about that, 
we have to look at what the Palestinian reaction has been to the Trump administration with the boycott of every cabinet secretary by the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, by a boycott of the Palestinian prime minister, Rami Hamdallah, in terms of his willingness to sit down with any U.S. officials, and especially the cold reception that the Palestinian negotiating team has given to Nikki Haley, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Jason Greenblatt, the special envoy of the president for the peace process, Jared Kushner, the point person on the peace process in the White House, and many other U.S. officials. Now, I think that uh, when we talk about the issues that the Palestinians are going to have to ask for in a peace process, let's just assume that there's not going to be a peace process, because for as much bluster that the president's offering, we have to be able to move to a certain critical juncture of whether or not it's possible to even believe that the Palestinians are going to play ball. Matt, if you're a common Israeli here, and you hear the president say that the Israelis are going to have to pay a big price, you lived in this country, what, what do you think is going to be the reaction? Well, there's going to be a lot of pushback. I think that uh, immediately what comes to mind is that they're going to have to concede territory or land, um, which... Uh, which could easily cause um, confrontations along several borders. Um, it's not going to go over pretty well. And I think that the Palestinians and Mahmoud Abbas are just rejecting everything that is coming from the administration and the United States. Even most recently, they, uh, Abbas angered Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi um, by rejecting the Egypt-brokered uh, truce between Israel and Hamas. Um, so I don't think it's going to be good. Um, I don't think Israelis are going to like the sound of that, but uh, we'll see. Well, I I think a lot of the uh, the commentary, at least coming from the uh, right side of the aisle on the Israel-Palestinian issue, has in one way or another been supportive of President Trump's opinions towards the Jewish state. And there was even a little bit of the clarification in a press conference that John Bolton, the U.S. National Security Advisor, gave speaking at the King David Hotel this morning, referencing the president's comments, and I'm quoting here from the Jerusalem Post, a a paper in English here in Israel, where Bolton says, the fundamental point is that ultimately this is something the parties are going to have to agree on. One of the most cogent things I've ever heard about the Middle East was something that Secretary of State Jim Baker said during the George Bush first administration. We can't want peace more than the parties themselves. Bolton said, we will need to speak about ourselves and to see with, if anything, the price of that Jerusalem move was. But here's the thing that I think the president has to realize. The recognition by the United States of Jerusalem as Israel's capital started with a bipartisan bill back in 1994 and 1995 with the U.S. Jerusalem Embassy Recognition Act, where 96 senators were able to get together. A majority of the House, a supermajority of the House, both Democrats and Republicans, under the stewardship of both President Bill Clinton and then Bob Dole, before they were able to run against each other in the 96 presidential election, got together and said, this is a bipartisan issue of consensus where the United States Congress will pass a law saying that it recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now that Trump enacted that legislation, did not choose to exercise a national security waiver which had allowed previous presidents before him to kick the Jerusalem issue down the road and to basically say it's too uh, early to be able to discuss recognition, at least from that of the uh, the U.S. presidency doing so. It got us to a certain point where 
Trump recognized facts on the ground. He recognized the reality. And now for him to go back and to rehash this issue, saying that it was actually a chit and a much bigger deal, flies in the face of us being able to find out what the Palestinians are actually thinking about, which is in one way or another that the choice between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority ends up being a sad outcome for the Palestinian people either way, and it's nothing that Israel should worry about, because in the final analysis and the final calculation, even if Trump pressures the Israelis, the Palestinians won't show up the days that the Israelis are invited. So that's going to be my opening remarks. After these messages, Cliff Smith of the Washington Project from the Middle East Forum on WWDB 860 AM. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rational excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio in the morning on WWDB 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman here with Matt Bennett, and we're really, really, really thrilled to have our next guest, Mr. Clifford Smith, the Middle East Forum's Director of Washington Operations, or as I like to say, the engine that helps us influence the decision makers and opinion leaders in our nation's capital. Cliff holds a bachelor's degree from Washington State University, a master's in public policy with a focus in international relations from Pepperdine, and is also a member of the D.C. Bar and Maryland Bar, graduating from the Catholic University of America about, let's say, six or seven years ago. An experienced political operative, he's a veteran of numerous campaigns and has held several positions in Congress. Most recently, communications director for U.S. Representative Gary Palmer prior to his arrival at the Middle East Forum about two and a half years ago in January of 2016. Cliff, welcome to the program. Hey, Greg, how are you doing? Good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for coming on today. So, Cliff, can, can you explain to uh, our audience here in Philadelphia around the rest of the world that will be listening to the podcast later why is it exactly important for you to influence D.C. decision makers on American interests in the Middle East? And, 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 and beyond that, how do you go about doing your day-to-day job? Well, you know, um, I think that a lot of people in Congress and the administration are familiar with the basic idea of the challenges in the Middle East. But what they don't always know about 
are two things. I would say they don't always understand, you know, the specifics, which a lot of our scholars spend a lot of time, you know, detailing who's doing what, who is, uh, who are the real bad guys, who are our friends, things of that nature. And they don't always understand the ideology behind radical Islam and the, that leads to terrorism, that leads to radicalism, that leads to a lot of the challenges that we as a free market secular society um, embrace. And I think that being able to talk to them and discuss sort of these basic issues in terms of the ideology that threatens us um, from the Middle East and who our friends and enemies are in the Middle East, and being able to you know, work with our scholars to get them up to the information on who's doing what um, is very important to them being able to do the right thing. So what do you consider to be the most important issue that your organization is working on right now as it relates, relates to America's security position or, or America's value proposition of, of adding a certain amount of security to Americans by being involved in, in, in Middle Eastern affairs? What, what is an issue that really, really gets you going? Well, there's been a few issues that have been really key to us in, in right now, and that involves how different Islamic charities, um, radical Islamic charities, not mainstream Islamic charities, have been involved in funding terrorism, um, and how sometimes, sadly, um, our own government um, has been complicit in dealing with that. Um, one very prominent example just recently that I've been working on a lot, something I've worked with with uh, some of our scholars in Islamist Watch, is on a group called ISRA. Or, um, ISRA has been a designated Al-Qaeda funding charity since 2004. They had been funneling um, literally millions of dollars to Al-Qaeda-linked groups since 1997. And uh, However, work that myself and some of our other scholars did revealed that, in fact, under the Obama administration, ISRA had been um, given a government grant of over $100,000 purportedly to do charity work in Sudan. Um, What's even stranger and more alarming about this is our investigation showed that this was not a mistake. This was not an accident. Um, We have very clear documented evidence to show not only did they know that ISRA was a designated charity, but having known it, they sought approval and got approval to give to waive the sanctions and give them money anyway. Um, so let me let me uh, let me stop you there just for a quick second here. We spoke about this issue last week or two weeks ago with Sam Westrop regarding the uh, mm-hmm. American funding of an Al Qaeda affiliate. But what we yes. didn't get into was what do you think the rationale was of bureaucrats in Washington D.C. knowing this, assisting this Al Qaeda affiliate to be able to, or, or, or a U.S. contractor, to be able to open up the, the U.S. coffers to fund this project, and even yeah. more so than trying to hide it. I, I understand it took you more than a year to get these government records made available to you. It, it took quite a while, yes. And um, I, I think it's, a, it's hard to know for sure what you know, the motivatives of you know, multiple bureaucrats um, are. I would say that there was a... There was a systemic problem in the Obama administration of downplaying the threat of radical Islam. I mean, as um, people might remember, Nadal Hassan um, jumped up on a table in Fort Hood and shot up a bunch of people screaming Allahu Akbar. And the Obama administration said, you know, this is a perfect example of workplace violence. No mention of radical Islam, no mention of jihad, no mention of anything that clearly it was involved with. Um, it was demonstrated by their 
um, embrace of Mohammed Morsi during his brief reign as the head of Egypt, um, things of this nature, they simply did not listen to the ideological threat. And I think that was that sort of blind eye to that sort of ideological threat made them sympathetic to groups they should not have been sympathetic to. Um, and admittedly, in this particular case, um, and this, they were actually being high-pressured by World Vision. Um, World Vision is a large Christian evangelical charity that, unfortunately, unlike most evangelical charities, um, has become very anti-Israel, um, much more sympathetic to Islamists, and um, World Vision was complaining that their whole operation would be threatened if this were shut down. So on one level, I, I understand that they want, you know, aid to go to Sudan and, you know, needy people. That's certainly totally legitimate. Um, but to the point where you are willing to fund, you know, al-Qaeda affiliates in order to do it, you're just making the problem worse in the long run. And the fact that either World Vision or USAID seem to really understand the full extent of that problem is very concerning. So I understand that World Vision was also involved in another terrorism financing scandal in Gaza, here in Israel. Can you can you give us a little details on that? Uh, that is an ongoing problem. Um, I wish I could give you more details. Their Gaza director, um, he has been um, awaiting trial for um, about a year, close to a year. I think it's about eight months, eight, uh, ten months, that is. Um, and is scheduled to go to trial next September. He has been accused by the Israelis of funneling literally millions to Hamas during his time in Gaza. Um, and what's worse, um, this is not even, that's not even the second time. This actually, this, this, the, the current time with the Al-Qaeda charity is the third time in recent years they've been accused of funding terrorism. They were, they have also been accused very credibly, um, very documented um, sources by Shrew Hadin of funding the People's Front for Liberation of Palestine back in 2012. So who is uh, who is who is Shirat Din for those of us who, who don't know the organization? Excuse me, Shirat Din is an Israeli organization that goes after um, anti-Semitism, terror finance, and things of that nature that are aimed at Israel. So, so they're basically like the opposite of the ACLU, insofar as instead of defending individual rights that are sometimes considered offensive. They defend the rights of victims who are, in one way or another, being uh, oppressed by uh, oppressive regimes and individuals yeah. and, and terrorist acts. Right? That's cr- that's correct. Okay, so, so let's 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 go back here for a second. You have the U.S. government in 2014 giving money to an Al Qaeda affiliate through an evangelical Christian charity that hasn't been caught once, hasn't been caught twice but has now been implicated three times in three separate terrorism financing scandals. Why do you think this isn't a bigger deal in the United States? Well, you know, I think it's starting to um, starting to become one. Um, the truth of the matter is, uh, sadly, up until very recently, and I say this as an evangelical Christian myself, um, most of the people that have been calling out World Vision's bad actions have not been other Christians. It's been mostly Jewish organizations. Um, even someone named Luke Moon, um, who is also an evangelical and works for a Christian um, think tank, um, he had written about World Vision in the last couple of years and some of its problems. However, unfortunately, um, you know, he, he wrote it in a Jewish magazine, and that's great, but the issue is, here's the problem. More evangelical Christians need to know about this problem with world vision because I can tell you from firsthand experience from my friends and relatives 
that most of them do not know. Um, and I think that this is a systemic problem with them, that until evangelical Christians start holding their feet to the fire and start policing their own, um, nothing is going to happen, because that's where they get their money, that's their base, that's who they care about. And it's, those, and it's Christians that need to hold their feet to the fire, and I hope other Christians like myself start doing so. So here, here's my question for you. You have an organization like World Vision that's operating in Australia. I think that's where they were founded, and they have operations in dozens of different countries throughout the rest of the globe. And then you have local investigations, whether it be in, uh, in Israel or I guess the Sudanese had, had sort of a, of, of a little bit of sympathy for the Al-Qaeda affiliate who was supposed to be getting money because I understand that there was Sudanese government pressure against World Vision there. What do you do as the Middle East Forum's voice in Washington to make members of Congress more aware of this? And, and, and how are they in terms of being receptive to the issues that you're talking about? Well, you know, this is this is ongoing right now. Um, I've had numerous discussions with people, um, both in Congress um, and the administrative branch, um, you know, White House, State Department, USAID, uh, members of relevant um, investigatory committees. And um, I don't want to reveal too much of, you know, things that are said behind closed doors, but I will say that they are very receptive to this information and are very interested that this has happened. I mean, we can also say that, um, the current USAID administrator and the current people at state have come out and said after um, our information went public that this should not have happened. We're making sure this won't happen again, and we are um, working to make sure that the problems that led to this are corrected. So already we're seeing some results, and uh, I can tell you that uh, I would expect that this is something that's going to continue. And do you think that some of the individuals who made that decision or were at least aware of that decision being made of funding this Al-Qaeda affiliate are still in American government today? I think that is, I think that is accurate that at least some of them are, yes. Um, but, you know, the, the political appointees are not there. They've been swept out um, pretty much, all of them, I believe. Um, some of the civil servants, that, however, are, and they need to be held to account, too, because this, they certainly shouldn't ever be in charge of potentially distributing uh, money to potentially terrorist-linked groups, um, given their judgment in the past. Okay. So it, it's good to know that there's some accountability in Washington. And, and I guess there's been a change in opinion from the previous administration to this one. As you had been indicating beforehand, there, there's less of a willingness to, in one yeah. way or another, fund al-Qaeda. Yeah, definitely. Look, I, I think there is two things. Number one, um, it's always been true, um, at least in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, that Republicans have been more willing to call out radical Islam than Democrats. Um, however, credit where credit is due, um, unlike the Obama administration, even, um, you know, then-candidate um, Hillary Clinton had said that she had no problem using the words, you know, radical Islamic terrorism, which the Obama administration didn't. So I, I do hope that we are seeing a sea change to realize that when we are discussing radical Islamic terrorism and radical Islam or Islamism, whatever term you want to use, we're not talking about all Muslims. I have lots of Muslim friends. I work with Muslims. We're not talking about all of them. But there is an ideology that has infected Islam that, you know, and this, this minority, a potent minority, but still a minority, is the real problem, and we need to call it out, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of moderate Muslims in the U.S. and all across the world. Cliff Smith, director of the Washington Project of the Middle East Forum. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, Greg. And as you guys heard who are listening today, 
there is a sea change in the way in which one administration affects another. But the reason why organizations like the Middle East Forum exist is to ensure that whether it's one president, one Congress, or one bureaucrat that makes a bad decision, we're always here as the watchdog looking out for your interests and America's involvement in the Middle East and protecting our way of life here in the United States from threats emanating from that region. After these messages, Orrin Litwin, Director of Islamist Money and Politics. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB 860 AM. My name is Greg Roman, director of the organization and host of this program, and I'm joined by Matt Bennett, our co-host, and also another employee at the Middle East Forum. Matt, who's next on deck? Next up, we have Oren Litwin. Oren is a research fellow for the Forum's uh, Islamist Watch and does extensive research for the Islamist Money and Politics Project. Oren is also an associate fellow for the R Street Institute and previously served as political risk fellow for young professionals in foreign policy and also an adjunct professor of political science at the United States Naval Academy in Annapolis. Oren, how are you today? Very well, thank you. Glad to be here. Good to have you with thanks us. For, yeah, thanks, thanks for joining us. Now, I understand that this election, the 2018 federal and state election, is the one, I guess, with the most amount of minority participation in terms of individuals running for office of any previous election in American history. Am I correct on that point? Um, Depending on how you define minorities, I believe that's correct. It's been widely reported that over 90 and by some counts over 100 Arab or Muslim candidates have been running for office across local, state, and federal um, and certainly a lot of them have indicated that they're being energized by this perception that the, the Trump administration is uh, anti-Muslim or anti-minority, and so they're trying to uh, uh, 
uh, counter his agenda by running for office. So but before we get into the, the specific demographics or, or the ethnicity or, or any issue as it pertains to maybe what you're looking into in terms of, of specific extremists or radicals who are perhaps trying to take part in or usurp the electoral process, let's talk about the background of the election atmosphere today. You, you, you had yesterday two major statements, which is what we began the program with, speaking about the uh, uh, guilty plea of Michael Cohen and the uh, uh, former campaign manager for President Trump, uh, Paul Manafort, being found guilty on eight of 18 counts re- with regarding uh, bank fraud and, and, and not filing his tax returns. What kind of climate are candidates running in right now for office? It's, I would say the, the uh, climate is very volatile. At the moment, there's a large groundswell on the Democratic side where they, they view uh, President Trump as being vulnerable. They're trying to capitalize on that vulnerability. Certainly within the Democratic Party, there's a struggle between the centrist Democrats and the uh, resurgent progressive wing. The progressives believe that their time has come, that this is the time for them to, uh, to take control of the Democratic Party while Trump is weak and while they have an opportunity to sell their message to the American people. Uh, certainly the mainstream Democrats believe that that's mistaken, and they believe that the, uh, that the progressives could jeopardize whatever chance they have in the elections. Uh, on the Republican side, there's a real uncertainty, I think, whether President Trump is going to help or hurt individual candidates, and that depends from election to election how that's going to work. Certainly Trump's base is very much supportive of what he's doing, in spite of all the, uh, the guilty pleas and in spite of all the various scandals and missteps that have happened. Uh, the uh, the so-called never-Trumpers obviously believe that Trump has been weighing down Republican candidates. Many of them have pretty much resigned themselves to uh, losing the House. Honestly, I don't know which way we're going to go, and we're going to see in November. So I think zeroing in on that divide within the Democratic Party between the Democratic Socialist uh, self-branded branch, this is, I guess, the outgrowth of the Bernie Sanders primary campaign against Hillary Clinton in 2016, and more of these uh, centrist Democrats, some who had served for 10, 11, 12 terms, like Joe Donnelly being knocked off in New York City, in the Bronx by Alexandra, Alexandra Otacio-Cortez, I believe, is, uh, is her name. She's sort of seen as the flag bearer, bearer of the progressive wing, a 28-year-old former bartender and community organizer from the Bronx, uh, you know, having only, I guess, a year ago prior to assent to getting involved in organized politics, winning the primary, and most likely now winning the general election in November, having not just gone so far to endorse her ideas, but creating sort of a rainbow coalition of individuals, some with very, very honest and, 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 and good intent, but others with a little bit of a nefarious background. One that I'd like to point to is a member of the Democratic Party in Michigan who just ran for governor, and another, a member of the Democratic Party in Minnesota, who has replaced Keith Ellison. Can you tell us more about these two candidates and, and maybe give us a little bit of an analysis why the uh, farther left, uh, uh, self-branded progressive wing is sort of in bed with them? Absolutely. So in uh, so Abdul Al-Sayed, who ran for governor of Michigan, is uh, by first appearances, he's certainly a very uh, fresh-faced young politician. He's in his 30s. He served some very distinguished uh, terms 
in the civil service in, in Michigan, uh, in, primarily in medical specialties. He's a doctor by training. Um, and he ran, you know, he, he is a proud Muslim. He ran as a strong defender of the separation of religion and state and as somebody that Americans should not have to fear on account of radicalism. Uh, and it's difficult to tell whether uh, that is in fact the, place, uh, the case, rather, because he has some significant connections with the Council on American Islamic Relations, CARE. Uh, his father-in-law, for example, Jukaku Tayyad, is actually a CARE Michigan board member, uh, and he has other family relations as well connected to CARE or the Muslim Student Association, which he was a member of as well. So his public. So just 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 scratching the surface here, CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, the Muslim Student Association, two organizations with pretty innocuous names, you know, be, without going into the, to the history of the organizations in the 1990s. Why should voters in 2018 be concerned about someone having an affiliation with this organization or or, or the MSA or, or any American Islamist organization? What threat do they pose to American democracy right now, if any? So, so if we're not going into specifics of each organization, the primary threat about the Islamist coalition in general is that they are forcing American Muslims and the allies of American Muslims or those who want to support American Muslims to also buy into a specific ideology called Islamism, which means that not only is Islam a religion, but a political platform and a political program. Islamism is a totalitarian uh, philosophy, which has its roots in the mid-20th century, and the danger is that people who just want to be good citizens, good Muslims, good members of American political society, by affiliating themselves with these Islamist organizations like CARE or MSA, uh, risk joining their energies to a project that they really would not appreciate. Okay, so now we understand the background of science connections. What makes him a, a, either a dangerous candidate or a candidate that Americans should be concerned with? And, and more importantly, who's supporting him financially? So I would say the financial support is the biggest indicator. Um, we at uh, Islamist Watch track a, uh, a number of prominent Islamists who are associated with these Islamist organizations, who are board members, who are uh, corporate uh, figures, and so on. And of that list, Abdul Al-Sayed has received the most political donations in this election cycle. It was over $50,000, and quite a lot of it coming from outside of Michigan, actually. So here we have a candidate who had attracted the support of some of the major figures within the American Islamist movement, and I think that indicates that they believe that were Al-Sayed to win, they would be able to advance their agenda. Now, it's, it's difficult to take the, You shouldn't take this too far because, obviously, Muslims are going to support a Muslim candidate just like, um, oh, I don't know, uh, blacks would support a black candidate and, or, or things like this. So, so there's a certain element that the, the fact that Muslims are supporting him is not unexpected. Still, the fact that he was getting so much support specifically from Islamists is a potential warning sign, and it merits further, uh, further scrutiny. Now, Al-Sayed actually did fairly well in his primary. He got 30% of the vote, not enough to win, but enough to establish him as a force to be reckoned with within Michigan politics, and he ha he announced that he would he would he would support the uh, the winner Gretchen Whitmer in her campaign. So he certainly t intends to take a uh, an active role going forward. So we at Islamist Watch are going to be keeping a close eye on him in the future to see whether. 
he is indeed a defender of the separation of religion and state, or whether we need to keep an eye on him uh, for Islamist leanings. Thanks, Oren. I want to ask you a little bit about uh, Rashida Tlaib, who, from I remember, a couple years ago was attending the, uh, she was a keynote speaker of Detroit's largest BDS rallies in 2014. She's acquainted with Linda Sarsour, and she shared a stage with Dawood Walid, who heads the Michigan chapter of CARE, uh, who was chanting, who are those that incur the wrath of Allah? They are the Jews. They are the Jews. Now, Rashida um, is in the news lately, and I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what she's up to today, and is she on your radar? Absolutely. She is certainly on our radar. She was the number two recipient of Islamist, uh, prominent Islamist money, clocking in at a little over $30,000 from the people we track. And as you mentioned, while Rashida presents herself publicly in, in the political sphere as a strong progressive, for sure, you know she she announced that she was going to be trying to destroy any sort of oppressive structures that discriminated against anybody. That the sort of you know traditional progressive uh, rhetoric, um, and and she has tried to de-emphasize the the Islamist angle as much as possible, while while at the other hand uh, presenting herself as a proud Muslim as well in her private life. The truth is she has made some rather uh, extreme associations and statements which uh, make us worry that she is, in fact, committed to the Islamist project. One of those, <clears throat> I'm sorry, one of those is that she is very closely connected with CARE, and as you mentioned, she is friends with uh, Linda Sarsour, the uh, noted Islamist firebrand who headed up the uh, Winds Rally some time ago. She actually went door-knocking with Sarsour at the end of July, which is interesting. She also benefited from a nationwide uh, fundraising push by both CARE and MGAGE, which is a political mobilization group founded by CARE alumni, as well as MPAC, the Muslim uh, Public Affairs Council, which is another Or we've got yes. about 60 seconds left. We're, right. we're past most of the primaries, and now we're coming up to the general elections. What one race should all of our listeners be following? I would say uh, we still got a, f- a few more days or a few uh, a couple of weeks before September 4th, which is when uh, another candidate, Tahira Amatul Wadud, runs for uh, the for the Democratic primary in uh, Massachusetts. She herself is probably the most unambiguous case of direct connections with uh, with actual like overt extremist groups in the form of Jamaat al-Fukra. So that's Tahira Amatul Wadud. Her uh, primary is, I believe, September 5th. And uh, we'll put that information up on our website so that our listeners can be able to engage with that and get some more information. Warren Litwin, an Islamist Money and Politics Fellow at the Middle East Forum, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. And after these messages, Oded Four, member of Knesset of the Israeli Parliament and chair of the Knesset Israel Victory Caucus, next. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach, a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. 
But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. We're at the bottom of the hour on WWDB 860 AM with Greg Roman and the Middle East Forum radio team. I'm very happy to welcome our next guest. Oded Four, an Israeli politician, member of Knesset for the Israel Beitenu Party, joins us this morning, coming live from Rehovot, down in central southern Israel. Oded, prior to his time in the Knesset, enlisted in the Navy, completed the Naval Officers Course, and survived in a variety of command positions. In the 20th Knesset, Mr. Four is a member of the Finance Committee, the Education, Culture, and Sports Committee, and the Special Committee to discuss the motion for the agenda on difficulties in reforming the civil service. Four also chairs the lobby for the promotion of trade in Israel and overseas, and is a member of the lobby for relations between Israel and African countries. And I think as well, he's the head of the Columbia Israel Lobby. Beyond that, he's also the chair of the Knesset Israel Victory Caucus, a project that he's been heading up now for the last year and a half, having also included a visit to the United States last November, signing a joint declaration with members of Congress promoting the idea of the recognition of the State of Israel by the Palestinians as a way in which the conflict can move forward only when that reality comes into existence. Oded, welcome to the program. Hi, hello, how are you? Good morning to you and all the listeners. Thank you very much. And I actually, I'm joining you today on this side of the Atlantic, uh, broadcasting from Tel Aviv. And we have Matt Bennett, our co-host in Philadelphia. And uh, uh, we're really glad that you had time to be able to spend with us today. Now, before we get into to talking about this uh, Israel Victory Caucus that you're involved with, can you explain to us a little bit about how you got into politics and what led you to running to be in the Knesset? Uh, it's a long story. I don't think that you have enough time for your show, but uh, I, I think that I knew that I'm going to be in, in some public office uh, when I was a young guy. My father was the mayor of the city of Rehobot, and um, when he was uh, elected, uh, I helped a lot in the elections, and that's, I think, uh, the time that I understood that this is uh, something that I want to do and I think I need to do. Uh, to represent uh, the public, and um, I, I've done it uh, uh, as a hobby for many years when I had my business, but uh, I always knew that I'm going to do it also as a professional, and, and before I came to the Knesset, I was the, the Director General of the Ministry of uh, Immigrant Absorption, uh, and now I'm, I'm doing my job and my uh, duty as a Knesset member, and uh, I think that I promote very important things for the citizens of Israel and, and for the state of Israel. So on the backdrop of a recent wave of violence, uh, of violence uh, emanating from Gaza, uh, I believe in south 
southwest Israel, there along the Israeli-Gaza border and also the Gazan-Egyptian border. What's the uh, the attitude of Israelis right now towards the Palestinians in Gaza, especially towards Hamas and the Palestinian leadership? What, what are the uh, common everyday Israelis saying on the street about what Israel should do uh, uh, vis-a-vis the Gazan issue? Of course, there is no question about the fact that Israel needs to uh, to collapse the Hamas regime in Gaza. I think that we are now dealing uh, with a problem that we have like uh, it's it's like a state that was kidnapped by a terrorist organization. But in order for this terrorist organization to fall down, the people of Gaza needs to understand that he's the one that uh, harms them and not Israel. Israel. Is not the problem. Israel is the solution. That's what we try to to explain the the citizens, uh, the people in Gaza Strip. Uh, and uh, when they deal with violence, they get a very heavy fire against them also, because we can't allow uh, any uh, tunnels or any uh, fire balloons or any rockets to fly over into Israel and not to react. So uh, we react and we react heavily, heavily and and. And our reaction is is mainly on strategic targets of the Hamas in order to uh, make him his uh, abilities, his military abilities, to uh, become smaller and smaller. That if and we hope that we won't need to, but if we need to come to to and to do another operation, we will start in a better position against the Hamas uh, when he has lower abilities than uh, than he has now. When there is quiet, we need to, to show the, the people of Gaza that if there is a security quiet, they can live and, and they can have a better life and a better economy, uh, but it's up to them. And I think I think it's admirable to note that the Minister of Defense, Avigdor Lieberman, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, have been exercising an extreme amount of restraint versus what another world leader would be doing if there was balloons on fire, rockets falling on civilian populations, tunnels being built underneath kindergartens to be able to target their people. I know that if President Trump was facing the same problems from, let's say, Mexico on the American-Mexican border, that there would definitely be a different way that the American security apparatus would react. And maybe that goes so far to show you the true moral nature of the Israeli government really trying to think things through before it decides to act, while still, like you said beforehand, making sure that strategic targets are taken out every time that the Hamas leadership, which in one way or another has almost kidnapped Gaza from the everyday Palestinian layperson. And, uh, and, and, and you know, it really should be a, a pat on the back of the Israeli leadership in terms of what they're willing to do to protect their people, but also to make sure that innocent Gazans aren't being killed. Now, now, when we talk about this complex between Hamas being the terrorist leadership and then the everyday Palestinian, what do you see as being the most feasible way to ensure that Hamas is no longer recognized as that leadership and that the Palestinians accept living with Israel side by side. I, I think this is part of your, your caucus that you have active in the Knesset. Yeah, first of all, I think that the international community has a very major and important role in uh, trying to promote a peaceful solution for this area. 
And, and as, as odd as it, as it may sound to some people, to promote a peaceful solution to this area, they need to support Israel's right to exist because the Hamas doesn't accept Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. So if the uh, international community continue to, uh, to come with demands to Israel without coming any demands to the Palestinian leadership, then we won't found or find ourselves in a peaceful solution because they understand that violence is actually helps them and promotes them. What we need to do is to see a different approach. I see it now from the Trump administration and, and, and um, America in those in the, the past uh, two years uh, have shown a very uh, strong support in Israel, and that actually helped us to promote a, a solution because they need to understand that Israel is here to stay and that, that they have to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. If they don't recognize us as a Jewish state, what do we have to talk about? We have to continue fighting until uh, they will uh, put up a white flag and say, okay, we surrender, we accept the fact that you're going to live here as a Jewish democratic state. So uh, any time that they get support from the international community without demanding them, to recognize Israel as a Jewish state, that puts us farther away from a peaceful solution. What we need is that the international community will demand, whether it is the leadership, the Palestinian leadership in Gaza or the Palestinian leadership in, in Judea and Samaria, it doesn't matter. In any help that they give them, any humanitarian help that they give them, it needs to, to, to have a condition. You need to recognize the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish democratic state. And I think that you have made this clear, not just in the activity that you've been involved with in the Knesset, but also in your visit to Washington, D.C., almost a year ago now. What was the uh, feeling in the U.S. Congress when you were bringing this message to American political leaders? How did they react to you uh, asking for recognition of Israel as a Jewish state prior to there being any uh, real negotiation with the Palestinians? First of all, I was happy to, to, to find people wanting to, to hear us and, and to not only to hear us, also to listen to us and to, to the new approach that we promoted. And of course, we have a sister caucus in the Congress led by uh, uh, Congressman Bill Johnson and Congressman uh, uh, DeSantos and Congressman uh, Joel Vargas. Uh, and, and that was important for us because then we succeeded after a meeting with uh, Congressman Joel Vargas to uh, to get him to chair this uh, this caucus, understanding that this is not a political issue because uh, the, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party needs to support Israel the same. It doesn't matter if they support democracy, if they support uh, human rights, they need to support Israel. And to support Israel is to say the first condition for anyone to, to talk to Israel about what he wants from Israel is to recognize Israel as a Jewish democratic state. We need to understand that even when the, the, the uh, head of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, says that he wants a two-state solution, he doesn't want a two-state solution, a Jewish state near, near to a Palestinian state. He wants a Palestinian state clear of Jews and another state that he will uh, bring enough Arabs to make it 
a Palestinian state, a second Palestinian state, and this is something that we can't agree on, and we need to set it at the beginning. Because when we set it at the beginning, then we know that they understand that Israel is here to stay, and they need to come to a peaceful solution. And uh, it was very um, uh, uh, good to see that we had such a support in the Congress. And I have to tell you that a few weeks after, uh, President Trump declared uh, that uh, he recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and, of course, uh, got the decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem. I think it was an important step to show the Palestinians you can't earn nothing from violence. We recognize Israel. This is Israel. Now, if you want to talk, come and talk to us. So it seems like the work that you're doing in the Knesset and the work that your partners are doing in Congress is on the right side of history and the Palestinian leadership finds themselves on the wrong side. Do you think that there's anything that the Palestinians will do in the months ahead will bring them a little bit closer to recognizing Israel as a Jewish state? I don't know if it's going to be months, weeks, days, or even years. We need; They need to see, like, uh, you know, uh, the, the, we say in the state of Israel, an iron wall. They need to see an iron wall in front of them that they can't crack, they can't destroy. They need to understand that they can't destroy Israel. Unfortunately, what happened 25 years ago with the Oslo Agreement that brought back terrorists from Tunisia to rule the citizens, the Palestinian uh, people that in the Judea and Samaria and in Gaza, that showed them, hey, we can win. We can win with the international community. We came back. We didn't give anything. We didn't recognize Israel as a Jewish state. And we got uh, to, to, to rule the territory. So 25 years later, and many, many deaths, and I, 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 it's really, I'm really sorry to say, but many people got killed in those 25 years in terrorist attacks. Uh, led by the Palestinians, now we need to see uh, and to set a new approach. And I think that the Palestinians start to understand. When you talk with the Palestinian people, they say, we we want to live, we want economy, we want to, 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 to trade together. They can have a very big benefits by uh, recognizing Israel as a Jewish state. They need to see it and they need, I think, to change their leadership. They need to change the leadership in Gaza Strip, definitely, and they need to change the leadership in Judea and Samaria. And, to, and, and, and if they, they have a leadership that will recognize Israel, then they will find themselves in a very better position, uh, coming to a peaceful solution. All sides will, will enjoy from it. I, I have to tell you, when, when I was a commander of um, a, a ships, battleships in, in the Israeli Navy uh, 20 years ago, uh, they had good life in Gaza. Uh, but since Israel withdrew in 2005, uh, and the Hamas got, uh, by, of course, by violence, got uh, power and, 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 and became the, the one that uh, uh, rules the Gaza Strip, they just have nothing to eat, and it's because of the, it's their responsibility, it's not ours. They need to keep us off. Member of Knesset Oded Four, thank you for joining us this morning and for your insight and, and from your lips to God's ears. Let's have the Palestinians hopefully recognize the Jewish state, not only for the Israelis' sake, but also for their own. Thank you. Thank you very much and have a good day. Thank you. Now, listeners, Bye-bye. you heard today 
from the head of the Middle East Forum's Washington operation, a little bit about what's going on with the electoral processes as it relates to the Islamist funding of candidates who may have views that are counterintuitive or anathema to American interests, and also from member of Knesset 4 talking about the road map forward for being able to bring true peace in the Middle East, at least as it pertains to the Palestinians and Israelis. And that would be the end of Palestinian transigence and the beginning of acceptance of their neighbors Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. With one minute left, we're going to go over two issues. Uh, Matt, can you give us the uh, readout on Qatar? Sure. The central banks of Qatar and Turkey recently signed a currency swap agreement to provide liquidity and support for financial stability, Qatar's central bank said. So I think the issue with the uh, Qatar bank here is, is that Trump slapped tariffs on Turkey last week. The Turkish lira spiraled out of control. And Qatar, in one way or another, was able to come in and save it. It seems like the Qataris are acting as the, uh, you know, enemies of America here rather than as the friends. And, and what's going on with Egypt? In Egypt, President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi signed a new law on Saturday that tightened the government's control of the Internet aimed at combating extremism. The anti-cyber information technology crimes legislation prohibits the, quote, promotion of ideas of terrorist organizations, unquote. Right. Now, now, now the thing with this is, is that the Egyptians are beginning to censor their uh, Internet even more than they did in the time before the rise of Morsi. And I think that this leads to a little bit of the uh, civil instability that's going on in Egypt right now, especially as their economy teeters. So whether we're looking at campaign financing, censorship, the uh, Egyptian issues, the Qatari issues, the Israeli issues. It's certainly an exciting time to be following the Middle East, and I think even more to be learning about it on this program. I want to thank again our uh, engineer and also our uh, uh, co-host here, Matt Bennett, Delaney Janschek, the production assistant, Lisa Barbunis, our uh, booker, and also everyone who was making it possible to broadcast here from Israel. Next week we'll be broadcasting back from Philadelphia, and I think that uh, in one way or another, It's good to be listening about the Middle East. Middle East Forum Radio on WWDB, 860 AM. Have a great morning, everyone.